Episode 36, Jack's Considerations for Good Bible Study, Part A. Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. Welcome back. I'm excited about this talk today. It's been a long time coming. In fact, some of it we've had already, bits and pieces, but I thought I'd put it together all in um, in one lump uh, for your consideration. These are things I want to um, talk about, uh, general considerations for how to have a good Bible study. Uh, this is somewhat prompted. I recently saw an episode or listened to an episode of a a Bible scholar's um, 10 laws for a good study or something like that. And it prompted some thoughts. Of course, there are far more than 10 things to be considered when it comes to good Bible study. So uh, that got me thinking even further that, well, uh, what the other uh, podcast did was just sort of a summary fashion. And I thought, well, we'll take a little time and talk through a bunch of things. So I wrote down things that have been on my mind for years, and I made a new list this morning, and I'm sure it's not complete, and so that's why I've called this uh, Part A. Uh, Part B may come, uh, who knows, tomorrow or never, right? (laughs) So if I uh, think of more that needs saying, I'll have another episode at some point and call it a Part B and link it from this one so that you can find it. Uh, But as of the time that I'm recording this one, there is no Part B in view, uh, although that may well come. So I've been thinking a lot, and we will talk in this uh, episode about uh, Bible scholars and what they do. And I've been thinking in particular how pretty much every Bible scholar you'll ever read, uh, a lot of his or her job is uh, disagreeing with what other Bible scholars have said before. And so this really outlines or highlights a problem, and that is that um, not everybody is going to look at the Bible texts and draw the same conclusions. And there are a million problems or a million reasons for this, I'm sure. Uh, And some of them would be very common, you know, cognitive biases, or they didn't consider all the possibilities, this, that, and the other thing. Now, tradition, that would be a huge bit of it. Uh, Suppose you are a Bible scholar at a university that takes a certain doctrinal view and your findings outside of that box would not be welcomed. Uh, suppose you know that could have something to do with some of it sometimes, uh, although not all. Uh, suppose you are you know employed by a denomination to be a a preacher, 
Are you really welcome to uh, come up with findings that don't fit uh, what the denomination traditionally teaches? There's another example. And of course, there's your own bias. Well, I'm not used to that. That's that's a new idea. That's a, a, a surprising passage, right? So anyways, I've been thinking through about uh, this problem. Uh, I am certain that I do this same thing myself. I don't know how much I do that. That is, I, I don't know how much I take a position that is ultimately not right or not right in every way. But I'm sure I do it. I must do it. I can reason that I must do it because I'm not perfect and I have not uh, reconsidered everything that I've ever believed. Uh, although I generally am, am about that business. But uh, even if I reconsider a thing, it doesn't mean I'm getting it right. And so this, again, goes very heavily toward this whole life and doctrine idea that if you've got to choose, you better get the life right. You better see that your heart is uh, honest and fair and just and responsible and rational and so forth. Uh, otherwise, it's just so easy to fall into the trap, uh, or one of many traps, actually. Uh, well, I'll just go with the flow. I'll go with what we always taught, even when you know or should know that those things are not uh, completely accurate. So it is such a huge area of consideration. I don't know of anybody who does well with these things who is not constantly trying to do well with these things. Uh, like I've said uh, before, the road to hypocrisy is a short one, and it just does not take long to get into bad habits or to ignore good habits without saying, hey, just wanted to let you know I have begun to ignore good habits. Right. So you still keep the reputation of, oh, he's Mr. Responsible and Reliable when it comes to his doctrine. Uh, well, if you're cheating, um, you know, that's bad right away. It doesn't it's not like you get to slide for a while before it becomes bad. So anyway, with that in mind, I have uh, I sat down this morning and began to write notes for this. You know, if I had to make a list of good considerations for Bible study, what would be on it. Uh, some of this you've certainly heard before, but not all in one um, package. And so I thought, thought I'd put it together for you. A lot of these are mostly just one sentence things. There are uh, 35 of them, just so you know. And so I will discuss them freely. We'll see how long it takes. If it's too long, I'll split it into two different segments, but uh, I don't know that at this time. This is me popping in here right after beginning uh, episode 36, the part A, to say that this will definitely go to two episodes uh, because it's over a little over two hours in length altogether. So here we go. Uh, these are Jack's considerations for good Bible study, part A. Number one, Good Bible study should be done with a mental attitude of honesty, rationality, and responsibility. If you don't want to know what the Bible really means, then what's the point in studying it? To mislead yourself? To mislead others? So let's get this started right. You know, why study at all if you're not wanting to find out what it really means? Number two. A uh, good Bible study is an exercise in decoupling from your own training 
and understandings and traditions and assumptions and wishes and attitudes and even your own mood, yea, verily, thine own mood, uh, so as to seek uh, to understand what the authors meant to convey and even why they meant to, to convey it, if that's possible to find that out. So in other words, you're, you ought not come to the Bible to be you. You ought to come to the Bible to let the Bible be the Bible. Uh, it's not an expression of self. I'm going to study the Bible and, and bring to the text all my knowledge and my deep convictions and my righteousness. No, it's you're going to the text to see what the text says. And so the, there's a lot wrapped up in, the, in this. In fact, we could easily go back into the whole meekness thing, the praus and praotes uh, discussion we had before about blessed are the meek. And that's uh, Matthew 5. So uh, this idea of decoupling from your own self, it doesn't matter what words mean to you. It matters what they meant to the writer. And if you don't have that attitude, well, what's the point? Why are you studying at all? Who are you trying to please? (laughs) Because you're not going to walk away understanding what uh, God meant or what Uh, the prophet who wrote it meant or the prophet who said a thing and got recorded meant. And so if you don't care what they thought, well, why are you studying the Bible? Uh, The Bible's just not for you. Number three, understand that the Bible authors mention things that their original audiences probably understood, but that you won't understand. For example, Consider Paul's mention of the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2. You don't know what third heaven is from any place in the Bible. It does not talk about it at all, except for that one passage, and there it doesn't give any details. So uh, Paul is writing to an audience we can assume, I think safely assume, who understood what that was, and he knew they would understand what it is, In fact, and we've covered this before, in that very letter, Paul says to them, I do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. So that's not just Jack making a good guess. I mean, that's, um, it's all, it's, it's explicitly stated in the, in that very letter, what Paul's attitude, what his paradigm is about, whether his writing should be understandable or not. Yet to them, he mentions this, uh, third heaven, And he does not spell it out for them, uh, presumably because he thinks they already would understand that. So what do we do when we run into something like that? If we don't track these things down, then we're deciding to settle for a limited understanding of what we're reading. And we did uh, talk about this some time ago in the episode about um, where I mentioned and I have not looked this up. I was so proud of myself last time for having written things down. Uh, But where I mentioned the abandoned trails where we have, oh yeah, I need to look that up, and then you just never do. So uh, this is going to be an issue. If you don't track these things down when you come to them, then you're basically deciding to settle for a limited understanding of what you're reading. Uh, Number four, the Bible doesn't explain everything it mentions. See number three above, you know, the example of the third heaven. 
Some of what it does not explain can be learned from extra-biblical works from the ancient Near Eastern culture. If you're scared to read these works, you are scared to understand the Bible. (laughs) And, of course, this opens a whole can of worms uh, because people get upset. They get nervous. They get anxious. Well, bro, that's... uh, that's not the Bible. I mean, that's or like, or that's the Apocrypha. Or that's the Catholic Bible or, or, you know, is that scripture, bro? So uh, anyway, so people get uh, quite antsy about that because of the rules they have about the Bible. Although those rules they have are not necessarily in the Bible. So we'll talk about that some more as we go along. Uh if you want to understand what uh, what the Bible's talking about, you sometimes have to go looking elsewhere. You also uh, need to go looking throughout the whole Bible to find out more about a topic. Uh, how do I know, for example, that the Bible doesn't say anything else about the third heaven? Well, I know this because I went and tracked it down. And I looked at every heaven passage there is and uh, determined that there is no mention of it. So if you're not interested in doing that, well, you're going to walk away with a limited understanding of what you're reading. Uh, Number five, the Bible doesn't always tell much about what it tells about. There are several things in it, uh, very important things that are mentioned only once. In no place does the Bible purport to be the complete record of all the things it mentions. Now, this is really quite a huge point. It ought to seem obvious, perhaps, uh, but it apparently is not obvious to every believer. A lot of people treat the Bible as if, oh, it's, it's all in there, everything we'd need to know. Well, what that tells me is that you haven't gone looking for much. Because I have lots of Bible questions. Gee, I wish I knew more about that. Gee, I wish it said more about this thing. You know, where can I find out more about that other thing? That's a constant thing for me uh, because I'm always looking. So if you're saying, if you're thinking the Bible's complete, well, uh, I'm guessing you're not really a student of the Bible. Or if you are a student, you only happen to look at subjects that are thoroughly covered therein. Uh, Here's a great example of that, this whole uh, resurrection business, this mass resurrection in Matthew 27, 51 through 53. This passage tells about the bodies of many holy people being raised to life again, and they went into the city, that is, into Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. Well, that's a really big deal. And that is the only mention you have of it in the entire Bible where that mention is uh, historical narrative. Hey, here's what happened. You know, this happened then that, that kind of writing. It is foretold, I believe, in Ezekiel 37 and probably other places, uh, Psalm 68, for example. Uh, However, you will not find the historical, okay, and then on this day, this thing happened, and then that other thing happened. That's historical narrative. And it's only in those two verses. Well, there are several other things like that that are in the Bible only once. In fact, uh, we already mentioned one. That's the third heaven mention. There's no other mention of that. There's no mention of a fourth or a second 
uh, not by those ordinal numbers. So if something else is talking about this, it's not using those words to talk about it. So uh, the whole thing, like with this Matthew 27, mass resurrection, where I say the Bible doesn't tell you much about what it tells about, uh, these people, who are they? Well, it's assumed either that you uh, would already know if you're the original audience or that it's just not important, in which case one wonders why the author would be bringing it up at all if it were not important. So uh, remember, the Bible does not purport to be the complete record of all things that it mentions. It just doesn't. Now, somebody's going to take the Peter passage. We've been given everything we need for life and godliness. And they're going to assume upon that passage a great many things like, oh, well, um, we've been given the Bible. And so the Bible must be everything we need. Or we have the indwelling, that must be everything we need. Or between the Bible and the indwelling, uh, and uh, uh, Pastor Larry, you know, this must be everything we need. Well, hang on there, Boudreaux. This is not, um, that's not responsible interpretation of what Peter wrote. In fact, there's a very good question as to whether that passage is one of those we slash you passages where the apostle is talking about the apostles having been given everything they need so that you, the addressees of the apostolic letters, and, you know, and I'm talking about the people to whom they wrote a couple of thousand years ago, so that those people could get, um, get served by the apostles as they needed. So... <laughs> You know, so people who use that passage often don't notice the whole we, you issue that Peter was not saying you have been given everything you need, but that we have, right? So there's a question you always need to ask in an apostolic epistle, uh, the whole we, you business, but also uh, where's the guarantee? Where does Peter say uh, we... Christians, all of us, plain, regular old believers, and I'm not just talking about apostles, we have been given everything that we need. And what I mean by that is the scriptures, uh, and more specifically, these certain books of the Bible, which will be saved forever and delivered to every Christian ever hereafter for them to read too. And it's all addressed to them the same as it's addressed to us. There's no explicit thing like that in there. And I believe with good reason. Uh, however, many will make those kinds of assumptions, which is uh, just, that's cheating. It's very, it's irrational and dishonest and irresponsible to do that. So, uh, so you got to understand you're going to be disappointed if you um, think that everything in the, that comes up in the Bible is going to be fully explained because it's just not. Uh, number six, in no place does the Bible purport to be the complete record of everything ever said, done, believed, or written regarding God, angels, and humankind. It just is not the whole story of everything that happened. And indeed, how could it be? <laughs> how can you take an 1,100-page book and tell the entire story of every, 
every interaction God and angels and men had together uh, over a history from, let's say the record covers 5,000 years. Or you can call it 10 if you want. You know, whatever the number would be, I'm not uh, wanting to argue that point today. And But what I'm saying is it, it doesn't matter. If we say, well, the Bible story is is 5,000 years from uh, the earliest people it talks about to the latest people it talks about, if you pick that number of five or four or seven, whatever, you cannot cover uh, 7,000 years of interactions between God, angels, and humans in 1,100 pages. So it's just not the whole story. And when people get used to that idea, they get a lot better at their Bible study because they realize, you know, maybe there's some things in here we're just not told about. And then they have to decide, well, how, how we're going to deal with that. Rather than the whole Wizzyotti thing, what you see is all there is. Oh, nothing else must have ever happened because it's not in my Bible. And that is uh, some poor thinking. Number seven, in no place does God commit himself to telling you everything you might like to know. And boy, I can vouch for this one. There's just no place. There's no guarantee that this book will tell you everything you need to know. And, you know, like for your life, uh, it doesn't tell you how to bathe well or how to avoid um, food poisoning or how to uh, get the best gas mileage out of your car you know, how to apply for a job. Uh, Does it tell you things that maybe are related to some of those fields? Oh, sure. I'm sure it does. But the Bible is just so not an exhaustive record of anything. Um, It's, and this is a bonus point. I didn't write this down, but some people want to think of it. Oh, the Bible is a blueprint for the church. Well, mm, I don't know. If so, it's a pretty scant one. You know, you you have some details about how the church uh, met there in Jerusalem early on and no details about their later stuff. You have very few details about how the uh, Gentile churches were meeting. Probably 1 Corinthians is the biggest uh, uh, serving of that you'll get anywhere. And a lot of questions still remain from that. It's not a life's handbook because if so, why doesn't it mention, uh, you know, the, what's the proper balance between diet and exercise and all this kind of stuff that you need to know about in life, how to balance your checkbook, you know, things like that. So anyway, the Bible just is not a complete record of everything that happened. And if you don't know that, that's going to mess you up in some of your conclusions. Number seven. Oh, no, that's, I'm sorry, that's what we were just talking about. In no place does God commit himself to telling you everything you might like to know. Well, I can certainly vouch for that. Number eight. There are most certainly some gaps in the Bible information. Probably some of them can be filled in well through well-considered study and speculation, and probably some of them can't be filled in well because we just don't have 
enough information. And this is a very uh, important thing to recognize that you're just not... Let's take the the, uh, third heaven as an example. You can read the Bible a hundred times over. You're just not going to find any passage that explains what that third heaven thing means. You can, however, go find out more about it from reading uh, extra biblical literature from the ancient Near Eastern world. And you will find that these ordinal uh, layers or levels of heaven are mentioned in several of those works. You'll find them mentioning uh, one heaven, some mention uh, two or three heavens, uh, some mention seven heavens, and some as many as ten, as far as I have found so far. So, uh, and of course, that raises other questions. Well, is this reliable? How come all the numbers don't match? Well, you know, people writing from different points of view or writing about different things might not stop and, and give you a little essay. For example, we've already covered how Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus uh, mentions two sections in Sheol or Hades in the underworld, the place of the dead uh, human spirits, uh, now disembodied because the human bodies in which they lived are now dead. Uh, However, uh, it doesn't cover the rest of what the Jews believed was how it was. Because we looked at 1 Enoch 22 and how that mentions that there were four places for the dead and not just two. And it goes on to give more detail about those four. Well, if we never looked into that, we might assume, well, it's just two and it's not four. And the Jews never had any idea it was more than just two. So should we not learn that because it's in the Bible or because it's not in the Bible? Many, of course, will... Uh, shy away for that very reason. They're scared about that. They don't know what to make of that. Well, how come it's not? (laughs) Is it canonical, bro? Well, here's the question for you. The question, is it true, is exceedingly useful, separate and apart from the question, is it canonical or is is it in the Bible? Should it be in the Bible? Is it scriptural? You know, the word scripture just means writings. It doesn't mean this particular set or that particular set of writings. Although the way the word is used in by the Bible authors and the speakers in the Bible who are quoted by the authors, the way it's used there, you can tell they mean this certain set of writings that come from from Israel and this God's chosen people kind of culture. So these uh, gaps in the Bible, can is it fair to fill them in? Is it fair to read about the third heaven and say, okay, let's stop right here. I went and, and researched uh, one Enoch and two Enoch and whichever other books, and I found ordinal mentions of heavenly layers or levels mentioned in X number of these books, Y number of times, and here's what all I found. And should this inform our view of Paul's use of third heaven? Or should we say, oh, no, definitely don't want to be further informed about that. 
And then somebody, of course, will get very nervous and say, oh, but which is it, Jack? Is it 10 heavens or seven or, or three or two or one? And I'll say, I don't know. Well, suddenly there's some uncertainty introduced. And some people do not do well with uncertainty. I would rather have the incomplete picture and consider it certain, some might say, than to know that the real answer is somewhat in question. And they just can't live with that. Well, I'm going to tell you, you need to get used to that if you want to be a student of the Bible. Because not everything is going to have a solid answer. Uh, can you fill in uh, the gaps poorly? Well, yes, you certainly can. Uh, you can, you know, look what uh, look what the Mormons did when Jesus says, uh, "I have sheep not of this fold." Well. Does he say that these are Gentiles? No. Is it obvious to a lot of people that that's what he was talking about? Yes. But uh, the Book of Mormon or Joseph Smith, I, I have not studied this out recently, so pardon uh, that I'm not uh, super keen on it, but they said, ah, that well, this he's referring to people in the Americas. And that's what he meant. So the, here they filled in a gap for you where the Bible does not explicitly fill it in. However, they made what, uh, a pretty uh, poor uh, conclusion on the matter and invented this whole new realm of doctrine um, through that uh, bad filling in of the gaps, hoping that makes sense. So uh, some of this, though, uh, some gaps, you're just not going to have enough information to fill it in. And there are certainly examples of that, and we've looked at some, and we'll look at more. And number nine, uh, the Bible is not a magic eight ball. It's not designed to give the appearance of, and you know I'm talking about this uh, this toy that's been around my whole life. I'm 56, and we had them when I was a kid. You ask the magic eight ball a question, you shake it and turn it over, and through a window in the bottom, there appears some manner of answer, which is, of course, very vague. Yes, no, maybe, could be, you know, whatever these kinds of things are. And, of course, it's just a game. And uh, some people like to go get their answers to life's difficult questions by asking the magic eight ball something. So, uh, number nine, I said the, magic, uh, the Bible is not a magic eight ball. It's not designed to give the appearance of addressing individuals with specific answers to their specific questions. It doesn't come to you with answers to whatever you want to talk about. You have to go to it to find out what the authors want to talk about. If you're not interested enough in what they wrote to convey, such that you're willing to take the time to read it and seek to understand it, then the Bible just isn't for you. So it's not your consumer game, your toy. It's not there to cater to you, to your convenience. That's just not how it works. And it doesn't give one word answers. You know, if you have a, some topic in mind 
and go study everything the Bible says about it, you could spend days of your study time doing that. You know, when I studied Sheol, and I think the number is over 600 occurrences of the word, well, that is not a convenient study. If you're going to go through every verse and see how it's used and how it's not used and draw some conclusions on that, being responsible in that way, that is not a convenient thing. And so you have to go to see what all they say. Uh, It's cheating to just go find a verse you like and say, ah, well, see, Uh, and then interpret that verse and don't look at the rest. That's cheating. And that's you going to the text for your own purposes rather than to say, well, let me see what all the prophets said about this. Number 10, the Bible is not a Ouija board. You know that game where you... uh, Several people sit around the table and uh, put their hands on some cursor-type um, block of wood or plastic and move it around to different letters that are on the board. Uh, supposedly, this is a seance-type, spirit-guided type thing that many understand, of course, is not. It's just uh, a game, a novelty type of thing. But uh, the Bible is not a Ouija board. It's not designed to be some sort of medium through which God or the Holy Spirit guides you through some spiritual nudging to find timely answers to your questions. It's also not designed to be a Ouija board, uh, what a Ouija board really is. And that is an exercise in coherence, bias, groupthink, pareidolia, and pattern finding, where the group is swayed at first by opinion leaders as to which letters to start with, and then recognizes this patterns, which they enthusiastically participate in completing. So if, I don't know, the group of middle school girls gets around the Ouija board and they say, well, uh, who should Sally marry, right? And Sally's in the group and they all want to know. And so they're asking whatever spirit to answer this question. And uh, somebody in the group uh, runs the, the cursor over to the letter M. They push it there while everybody else's hands are on it too. And, uh, you know, M is the first letter of Mark and everybody knows that Mark likes Sally and, and, you know, half the group really likes that idea. And so they definitely, they push the, the next uh, over to the A letter and so far so they can spell out Mark. And by the time they get to M-A-R, well, everybody there, uh, quote, knows, end quote, Oh, it's telling us Mark. It couldn't be telling us Marvin because we don't know any Marvins, right? And so the answer must be coherent to us. It cannot be that we're going to get an answer that would confuse us. No, that wouldn't be right because it all needs to be coherent and it needs to look like stuff that we already know what that is, right? So it's, they get the M-A-R out of it, and it's a done deal in their minds. Well, that's how the Ouija board works. It's sort of a group think um, exercise and where they're, they see a pattern, they finish the pattern, and they're also open to the manipulation of those who want such and such to be that particular answer, right? Well, that's not what the Bible is, although a lot of times it works exactly 
that way in groupthink. When um, a group has a particular answer in mind uh, to some sort of question, a lot of time their, their quote, Bible study or their uh, Bible answers, their Bible response will get steered in the direction of the answer they like already uh, rather than conducting a true exhaustive Bible study. So it's sort of a steering thing, a, uh, um, a, an anchoring thing. And that's cheating, but that happens quite a lot. So the Bible is not a Ouija board. Uh, number 11, the scriptures were designed to be studied and not merely read. Uh, Psalm 11, or Psalm 111, verse 2, which I should have, oh, here it is. Uh, Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Here's an example of a passage that talks about this uh, idea somewhat that us, and we've looked at this before, but that the works of God, the things God has done, his deeds, are studied by all who delight in those works. Now, maybe we could look at this in a couple of different, uh, through a couple of different filters, but if you take it strictly with the literal language here, there is no exception, that there is no person who delights in God's works who does not study them. And so back to my point, the scriptures were designed to be studied and not merely read. Oh, I read four chapters in the Bible this morning. Great. What'd you learn from it? Well, pretty much stuff I already knew. Well, why is that? Did you look at all the Greek words that are in there? Or did you check any cross-references to compare to how other uh other passages in the Bible address the same thing? Or did you look at other translations of the same chapters you read? Oh, no, I just read the four. Well, okay. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying that that is not study. Because you could really learn a lot, uh, f- depending on you know what the passages are about, by doing those other kinds of things. And so... I think it is designed to be studied. I think that God wants us to do that. And if you're not interested enough in what God has done, that you're willing to study it out, then the Bible really just isn't for you. Number 12, the Bible is written language. It's a book. You have to read it or listen to it being read. If you're not interested enough in it to read it or listen, decoding the words so as to get them into your own mind, then the Bible really isn't for you. The Holy Spirit does not provide any shortcut for this. Contrary to popular opinion, the Holy Spirit does not explain the Bible to people. And if you think it does, how do you explain disagreements between believers who think that the Holy Spirit is telling them what the Bible means? This is a huge point. It really deserves an answer, and a good answer. Well, bro, they're just not all doing it right. Oh, well, I thought the Holy Spirit was doing it for them. Well, 
well, <laughs> you know, what are you going to say? Either the Spirit's helping or it's not. And if he's not helping, then, okay, well, you're on your own. It's up to how well you read, how honestly, rationally, responsibly, diligently you read and study or not, right? Well, no, I, I don't like that answer, Jack. I want it to be a spiritual answer. Okay, it's up to how spiritual you are then. Well, no, I don't like that either. I, I want there to be a component where the Holy Spirit helps people. Ah, okay. Well, if that's what you want, then you need to come up with a way to explain why the Holy Spirit helps Lisa, but not Sally. Why did Lisa get this passage right and Sally did not? How did Lisa read this passage and at the end of the day ended up understanding that, oh, this is mentioned in two of the other Gospels also, and it's a reference back to something in Isaiah, which was about this or that. How does she get that answer out of it, and Lisa doesn't? Did the Holy Spirit graciously give this information to Sally, but not to Lisa? Well, it could be, bro. Okay, on what grounds? Is Lisa being punished somehow? Well, I wouldn't want to say that. Okay, well, what is it then? And so you really have a serious logical problem that needs to be explained here. But I've never heard anybody explain it. Well, it's just, it's just a matter of maturity, bro. That's all it is. People mature at different rates. Wait a minute. I thought the Holy Spirit was the thing that was behind making them mature. Well, it is. Okay. So why do they mature at different rates? Why isn't the Holy Spirit fussing at the one? Hey, you're behind. Get with the program, right? Here's the right answer. Come on. That doesn't seem to be how it works. Well, each one, you know, some resist the Spirit, Jack. Okay. So you're telling me then that it's not guaranteed that the Holy Spirit is going to punch through your slowness to learn or your resistance to the learning and make you get the right point? about a passage of scripture. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay, then says Jack, that brings us right back to where we were in the beginning. You don't have a guarantee that you're going to understand a passage uh, by virtue of being told what it means by the Holy Spirit. Well, yes, you do. Uh, okay, we just went through all of this. <laughs> no, you don't. You see, you swim at your own risk here you're having to do the figuring out of what it means and you're doing it either well or not so well or not well at all. Okay, so it's a book. And suddenly that puts everybody in the business of being literate. Can you listen to language and understand what it means? Can you hear a story and know what you're being told? Can you consider a question and understand what's at stake, what's being asked? Can you hear a statement of fact from Scripture and understand what the implications of it are? This requires people to be literate, to understand language, to know how it works. You know, cognitive science scientists would call language a mindware. 
language is the art by which we express our thoughts. Not only to others, but also to ourselves. Many people, I'm told that some don't, but most people, it seems, think in language. Hmm, should I go to the party first or should I stop by the gas station first? Hmm, they, they don't. How in the world would you have that talk with yourself if not through language? And so um, I'm very curious about those who don't, if that really happens. Uh, but I know that many people do. They will talk with themselves. And so isn't it interesting that God wrote a book or had a book written, however that worked out, and that's quite the discussion, by the way. But isn't that interesting? It's a book, folks. Well, what do you do with books? Well, you read them or you listen to them being read. Well, I'm illiterate. Uh, okay, you mean you mean by that that you don't read? Okay, uh, do you listen? Do you understand sentences? Well, absolutely. I can process nearly anything I ever hear. Ah, well, there you are using big words like process. Okay. Um, knock yourself out then. But the thing is, it was given to this generation in writing. So a question that follows from that is, can you be a decidedly non-literate person and be a friend of the Bible. Well, that's difficult. That's quite the odd couple, right? <laughs> they just don't go together. And so right off the bat, you're looking at, well, wait, does God expect us to learn to read and to learn what words mean and to learn what phrases mean and how things are expressed? and to learn to differentiate between this and that expression? Well, uh, yeah. Well, this will upset a lot of people because they think it's somehow prejudiced or uh, racist or something like this, that, oh, no, you, you can't expect that of us. We're just poor people. We're just simple country folk. We're just, you know, whatever. Well, question. Suppose that someone you cherish were to write you a love letter. And suppose that this were okay and that you're not married and there's no, no infidelity going on here on either part. But suppose you get a love letter from somebody that you think is just fantastic. And suppose that you don't read. Well, you know, when people do read and they get a love letter, they'll read it again and again and again for days and days and days because that's what you do. You want to savor every bit of it. You want to understand exactly what they're saying. Well, how deep is their love for me? And, you know, what level of commitment and, and what's next and all this? And what did... She mean by this, or what did he mean by that? You understand? Uh, you cherish it. You delight in that person. And so you study the letter. Well, suppose you don't read. Oh, yeah, I got a love letter, but, you know, I don't know what's in it. 
Imagine that. I mean, that's really quite remarkable, right? That somebody would get such a treasure and not learn how to decode it for himself or herself. And what that tells me is that, well, you must not care that much, or either you're completely convinced that it is impossible for you to learn to read. Well, okay, maybe you do have some learning disability. Uh, what's to keep you from humbling yourself and getting somebody else to read it to you? Do you care enough to go to that length to understand what was said to you in the letter? Well, why shouldn't you? If this is truly from a person that you admire. So it is a book. And this necessarily involves the mindware of literature, reading, not necessarily writing, but you know, you're decoding, even if you're not encoding in the process. Of course, a lot of people, when they study, they do write down their findings. Uh, you know, but you could, just from memory, and without making any notes, you could learn a lot, I'm sure. Well, the idea, again, that God wants people to be literate, that's going to be controversial because a lot of people think, no, God wants us to revel in our lowly selves, not knowing very much at all and having very little ability. And that's what God wants. Well, I don't think so. Now, does God call everybody to be a writer of Scripture? Oh, no, absolutely not. Is everybody called to be a spokesperson? No. So I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if you want to unlock what the Bible says, well, you're going to have to go get some keys. And it's a book. And that tells us something that may be surprising to a lot of people. And we can draw some conclusions from that. Number 13, we read or listen to the Bible at our own risk. We study at our own risk. We decide whether we understand a passage or not at our own risk. There is no guarantee that we will understand what the Bible authors meant. There is no guarantee that we will not misunderstand what the Bible authors meant. We study and read and listen at our own risk. Uh, I guess I'll say more about this in the ones that follow. Let me just move on and then perhaps I'll expound some more on this number 13. Number 14, on making a bad decision as to what a passage means, there is no failsafe that keeps us from believing it. We can believe it for the rest of our lives and never realize that we got it wrong. Especially if you're the sort not ever to talk things over with other people never to have a conversation with others, never to read what, other, what authors have written about this, what commentators have said. Uh, you can make a bad decision on what a passage means and never get corrected. There is no fail-safe. You know, and somebody, we've already discussed the bias. Well, if, if I were wrong about this, I would know it. Or God would not let me be wrong about this. Or God would not let my pastor be wrong about this. Or my pastor would not let me be wrong about this. 
or even the particularly uh, arrogant, I would not let me be wrong about this. I am very good at knowing whether what I believe is true or false. So think about this. If there's no guarantee that you're going to get it right, what does that say about the whole situation where God gives us a book? Does God think that we're all going to get it right? Well, you know, normally we say God knows everything, and so it's difficult to imagine that God would be surprised. Ah, some, you know, some of these people I've been watching and they're getting some of these passages wrong. <laughs> oh my, <laughs> you know, whatever shall I do? I think God knows completely well that we are prone to error. And um, yet he gives us a book anyway. So what can we learn from that? I think he's interested in the process. I think he wants us to be digging and working the puzzle and trying to figure it out, trying to make good sense of it, honest, rational, and responsible sense, and not just nonsense sense, things that cannot be explained. Uh, number 15. There is no evidence that the table of contents in your Bible was written by God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit or the apostles of Jesus or his prophets. Nor have any of these signed off on it or initialed it. Some of the authors do mention or quote from or allude to some of the other writings that are in the Bible, but none of them say that this or that document, quote, should be in the Bible, end quote. The decision of what should and should not be in the book is a human decision. And you should know, if you don't already, different humans at different times and places have made different decisions as to be what should include it, as to what should be included in it. Now, this one's really upsetting, I'm sure, to a lot of people. They want it to be just a done deal. Oh, no. God decided exactly what's in the Bible. I read the Bible. That's all I need. I don't need anything else. I don't need to be further informed on anything than just what I read in the Bible itself. And I'm pretty sure that if it's not in here, uh, it doesn't need to be read. And, and probably they're pretty sure that one ought not read it. This is the kind of comfortable thinking that people get in and do not want to be nudged out of it. And what a pity that is, because you can't know. What are you going to do with the third heaven? Make up your own version? Oh, let's see. Um, yeah, actually what happened, Jack, was that once upon a time there was heaven, like you know Genesis 1, it's created. But then um, that got destroyed and uh, another one was built. And then, let's see, three heavens, third heaven. Oh, okay, so it got destroyed again. And then the third one, that's the one Paul's talking about. Well, you're just making that up. So what's more likely, that you can make up a good answer or that a good answer could be derived from studying what the extra-biblical ancient Near Eastern texts say about it? Which is more likely? Number 16, the pages in your Bible that say Old Testament and New Testament are not scripture. 
This is a convention of man and maybe not a very good one at that. Did you know God did not write those pages? As I recall, they were added, I think, in the 1500s A.D. That's when this convention was invented. And uh, before that, nobody seemed to have this idea in a conventional kind of way. So, again, I've talked about this in an earlier episode, the number to which I cannot tell you that I really wish we didn't call it the New Testament and the Old Testament because I think that skews our thinking sometimes. And we tend to especially write off Old Testament. Oh, bro, that's just Old Testament, as if that doesn't count for anything. Uh, Number 17. The chapters and verses are not original to the documents in the Bible. They were added much later for reference so that we could talk more easily about the Bible's contents. Do not assume that the close of a chapter is the close of the author's train of thought on a certain subject. This is pretty widely known, but not everybody knows it, so that's why I don't hesitate to mention it here. Number 18, the Bible was not written in English. It has been translated to get you an English version to read, and this has been done many, many times. For example, you can find about 60 English translations at BibleGateway.com, and that's not all of them. Well, if it wasn't written in English, then there are lots of um, implications to that. And some of these uh, later points here will discuss some of that. Number 19, there are several different methods or styles of translating the Bible into your language. One is to be strictly literal in translating the original language words into English words that are thought to be direct equivalents. So, for example, if um, the uh, Greek word is, um, oh, what might it be? If, If the Greek word is Petra, which I believe would translate uh, pretty plainly over to rock, then fine. Anywhere it says Petra, then you put in rock, right? So we want these very literal things. Well, that doesn't always work. But you can try to do that best you can. And yeah, we're going to take this literal view. We're going to be slaves to the rule. Oh, it must be literally uh, translated. And so that we're going to do it that way. And some translations pretty much follow that uh, kind of method in doing it. What do you do when you get to word like prouse, though? This word for meekness or meek. And there is no English word that means what that Greek word meant. What are you going to do then? Are you going to explain out the idea? Or just find a word even if the word doesn't express the idea very well? right? So another uh, way of translating the Bible is to translate idea for idea using English phrases and syntax that is familiar to the English audience. So in other words, you want it to sound like English and not like awkward, you know, like King James a lot, it's funny, it, it made for awkward English compared to the English of its day, but because it was around and under such constant use for so many centuries, it actually shaped the English-speaking world, 
and shaped the habits so that it did not sound awkward anymore. When you read it today, it sounds awkward to the modern who does not know it uh, because English continues to change and all that. Another method of translating the Bible is to try to show all the possible meanings of the words in the original language. And you think of the Amplified Bible for this, where, for instance, if the word faith would, if pistis was, would be in the text, they might say faith, reliance, trust in parentheses. And so talk about some awkward English. Well, brother, I have lots of faith, reliance, trust in you. <laughs> so this is, uh, you know, what is that? Well, this is more of a sort of a study guide rather than a, an actual translation, right? But what they're trying to do is to give you an idea of what the Greek words mean and how it might make sense. And so it's up to you to do the math. Oftentimes what that can do is turn into a... a um, a buffet where you pick your favorite. Well, I like the word rely better than I do these other two, so that's how I'm going to read it. Well, is that a guarantee that that's what the author meant? Oh, don't know. Not necessarily, right? So you try to do idea for idea or, or show all the possible words, meanings of the words. Uh, still another is to expound fully on the meanings of the original language as per the translator's own understanding of the passage. Uh, this is a lot where you get paraphrases, like the Living Bible, for example. And, um, you know, I, I can't quote the Living Bible on something, but it, it'll take a, you know, and Jesus wept. It's like a verse like that and re-express it. Well, hmm, what does this mean to me? Uh, and and again, I'm not trying to quote the Living Bible, but somebody might like like that might render a passage uh, and Jesus was so troubled that uh, he expressed it through tears. And, you know, is that accurate or not accurate? Well, is it, Would the writer, would John write this, the one who wrote this passage, Jesus wept? Would he say, yeah, that, that's exactly what I meant? <laughs> or would he say, no, well, that's not what I meant? You know, what's wrong with what I just said on the paper, right? So, you know, some people try to explain it like that. And you have to understand that when you're reading a translation, well, what kind of translation is this? And, you know, what was their angle in how they decided to approach this topic, uh, this passage, uh, or even the whole, the whole book itself? You need to understand that as you're reading. Number 20, when you read a translation or a version of the Bible, you are seeing the workings of the mind of the translator or translators. Perhaps they have perfectly rendered a passage, or perhaps they have totally missed the point of it, or perhaps it's somewhere in between. As unspiritual as this may sound, you are working with the middleman. You're not reading directly the thoughts of God or of his prophets. You're getting at God secondhand or thirdhand or worse than that. You know, some whole committee may have decided what a thing means and how to render it. Uh, again, as we've discussed, considering the Jewish Publication Society's uh, rendering of Genesis 1 
and particularly uh, verse 1 or 1 through 3, a lot of people will pick up a Bible in the bookstore and spot check it. And if it doesn't say in the beginning, in those first three words, they're like, well, this is messed up. (laughs) So they reject it precisely because it does not fit what they traditionally know it to say. All right. Well, why are you even in the store looking at new translations anyway? So it makes for tricky psychology uh, how people approach all of that. But you've got to understand there's at least one person in between you and the original text. And uh, not to oversimplify, but it can get even more complicated than that. Number 21. God knows all this. Everything I've mentioned so far, he knows all of this. And we can deduce that this must somehow be okay with God because he most certainly could teach us all the original languages if he wanted to. Yet he does not. So think about that. He could make it easier, but he doesn't. Does he then value the processes of mulling and pondering and reflecting and comparing and discussing? Because if you want to get a good handle on the Bible, that's what you have to do. Unless you're just lucky. I mean, and some things are quite obvious. Jesus wept. Hmm, bro, what does that mean? Let's really dig into this. Well, okay. Sorry, there's just not much content here in this passage to be dug into. And certainly there are many passages in the Bible that are like that. They are indeed pretty straightforward. And it doesn't require uh, um, a college full of Bible scholars to get it right. But God knows this. And he knows that uh, some of it is difficult and some of it's not. And he knows that there's other people in between us and the original text, uh, translators and such, editors and so forth. He knows that. And yet he still delivers this book to this generation anyway. So isn't it reasonable reasonable to assume that he wants us to be able to navigate those waters safely? And even though other people are involved, that we still could think rightly about things and come up with a good understanding of the Bible. Isn't that reasonable? I think it is. Number 22, the Bible was written in three now-dead languages. And it also includes many words that were borrowed by the authors from other now-dead languages. You'll you'll find, uh, of course, Hebrew and Greek, uh, Aramaic in the Bible, lots of passages in that, and some very short other passages or single word in other languages like Eucharitic, for instance, and uh, Assyrian and things like that. So that is complicated, and God knows that. So it requires study to know what those words and phrases mean. Sometimes it makes a difference. There are some Bible passages where translators will translate it one way. Another translator comes along and says, wait a minute, I think this might be the Ugaritic word here and not a a similar-sounding Hebrew word. 
in which case that changes the translation. Well then, there's a difficulty. But I don't think this bothers God. I think he knows this. I think he knows it ahead of time. He knows how it works. He knows what the issues are and what we need to deal with and all that. I don't think God is nervous about that. We must be able to handle it. So I'm going to break in here and uh, cut this episode into two. So we're just going to stop right here and then pick it up immediately in the next episode. Thanks for joining in.